This message is brought to you by Alliance Bible Church located in Mequon, Wisconsin. Our vision is to captivate generations with the satisfying gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about Alliance Bible Church or other resources, please check out our website, myabc.church. If you have your Bibles, turn to Numbers 13. Numbers 13. Ever since the miracle that occurred at the Red Sea, Israel has been journeying through the wilderness. Now, we're actually going backwards in time today. The last few weeks, we've been looking at the book of Deuteronomy, which chronologically happens after the scene that we're looking at today. We're picking up their travels as Israel has reached Kadesh Barnea, which is on the southern border of the promised land. Um, God comes to Moses and says that he is to appoint 12 scouts, 12 leaders, to go into the land and check it out. They're called spies, leaders, one from each tribe. And, uh, and so God tells them to do this. Moses appoints, him, appoints them. They go in to check out the land. We're going to pick up the story in 13, verse 25. It's long, but it's a riveting story, so I want to read the whole thing. Chapter 13, verse 25. At the end of the 40 days... They returned from spying out the land. And they came to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation of the people of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. They brought back word to them and to all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. And they told him, we came to the land to which you sent us. It flows with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. However, the people who dwell in the land are strong, and the cities are fortified and very large. Besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites dwell in the land of the Negeb. The Hittites, the Jebusites, and the Amorites dwell in the hill country, and the Canaanites dwell by the sea and along the Jordan. But Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and occupy it, for we are well able to overcome it. Then the men who had gone up with him said, We are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we are. So they brought to the people of Israel a bad report of the land that they had spied out, saying, The land through which we have gone to spy it out is a land that devours its inhabitants, and all the people that we saw in it are of great height. And there we also saw the Nephilim, and we seemed to ourselves like grasshoppers, and so we seemed to them. Then all the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, Let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. And Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before all the assembly of the congregation of the people of Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, who were among those who had spied out the land, tore their clothes and said to all the congregation of the people of Israel, the land which we pass through to spy it out is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into the land and give it to us, a land that flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord, and do not fear the people of the land, for they are bred for us. Their protection is removed from them, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. 
Then all the congregation said to stone them with stones. But the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of meeting to all the people of Israel. And the Lord said to Moses, how long will this people despise me? And how long will they not believe in me? In spite of all the signs that I've done among them, I will strike them with the pestilence and disinherit them. And I will make of you a nation greater and mightier than they. But Moses said to the Lord, the Egyptians will hear of it. For you brought up this people in in your might from among them, and they will tell the inhabitants of the land. They have have heard that you, O Lord, are in the midst of this people. For you, O Lord, are seen face to face, and your cloud stands over them, and you go before them in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. Now, if you kill this people as one man, then the nations who have heard your fame will say, it is because the Lord was not able to bring this people into the land that, that he swore to give them that he has killed them in the wilderness. And now please, let the power of the Lord be as great as you have promised, saying, the Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression, but he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation. Please pardon the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of your steadfast love, just as you have forgiven this people from Egypt until now. Then the Lord said, I have pardoned according to your word, but truly as I live, And as all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord, none of the men who have seen my glory and my signs that I did in Egypt and in the wilderness and yet have put me to the test these ten times and have not obeyed my voice shall see the land I swore to give their fathers. And none of those who despise me shall see it. But my servant Caleb, because he has a different spirit and has followed me fully, I will bring into the land into which he went and his descendants shall possess it. Now, since the Amalekites and the Canaanites dwell in the valleys, turn tomorrow and set out for the wilderness by the way of the Red Sea. And the Lord spoke to Moses and to Aaron, saying, How long shall this wicked congregation grumble against me? I have heard the grumblings of the people of Israel, which they grumble against me. Say to them, As I live, declares the Lord, What you have said in my hearing, I will do to you. Your your dead bodies shall fall in this wilderness. And of all your number, listed in the census from 20 years old and upward, who have grumbled against me, not one shall come into the land where I swore that I would make you dwell, except Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, the son of Nun. But your little ones, who you said would become prey, I will bring in, and they shall know the land that you have rejected. But as for you, your dead bodies shall fall in this wilderness, and your children shall be shepherds in the wilderness 40 years, and shall suffer for your faithlessness until the last of your dead bodies lies in the wilderness. According to the number of the days in which you spied out the land, 40 days, a year for each day, you shall bear your iniquity 40 years, and you shall know my displeasure. I, the Lord, have spoken. Surely this will I do to all this wicked congregation who are gathered together against me. In this wilderness they shall come to a full end, and there they shall die. And the men whom Moses sent to spy out the land, who returned and made all the congregation grumble against him by bringing up a bad report about the land, the men who brought up a bad report of the land died by plague before the Lord. Of those men who went to spy out the land, only Joshua the son of Nun and Caleb the son of Jephunneh remained alive. There's a lot I don't know about each of you. You have unique stories, the details of which I'm oblivious to, but... There is something I know about all of us, something that's true about all of us, and that is fear is a problem for us, every one of us. 
Fear is a universal human problem. This story from Numbers 13 and 14 is a treatise on the destructive nature of fear. Those of you who may be experiencing that most acutely this morning may find this both challenging but also timely. Here's what we're going to ponder today. We're going to look at what fear does, how fear flourishes, and we're going to look at fear's kryptonite. What fear does, how fear flourishes, and fear's kryptonite. First, what fear does. This text highlights four different effects of fear. And as we go through each of them, think about your own life. Locate them in your life. See how various circumstances in your life's history have shown this to be true. Four different effects of fear. Number one, fear exaggerates the challenges. So God tells Moses to send 12 leaders to go scout out the land. They do so, and they bring back the report. The land is bountiful. It's plentiful, just as God said it would be. It flows with milk and honey, which is a way of saying that it's flourishing. But it's not without its challenges. The people there are strong. They live in large, fortified cities. So taking possession of the land is not going to be a cakewalk. This is the objective, straightforward report of the 12 scouts. Now, this objective, straightforward report struck fear in 10 of the 12. And their fear begins to show itself, and the effect of the fear begins to show itself when they pipe up and say in verse 31, then the men who had gone up with him said, we are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we are. So they brought to the people of Israel a bad report of the land that they had spied out, saying, the land through which we have gone out to spy it is a land that devours its inhabitants. And all of the people we saw in it are of great height, even the two-year-olds. And there we saw the Nephilim, and we seemed to ourselves like grasshoppers, and so we seemed to them. This land devours its inhabitants, and all the people are of great height. Do you see what's happening here? Do you see how this posture of fear is causing them to exaggerate the challenge that's in front of them, and it's distorting reality? This is important. We have a posture of fear. It distorts reality. This is critically important for leaders and followers. You are all leaders in some arena of your life. You might be a leader at your place of work. You might be a leader within your circle of friends. You might be a leader at home. You might be going just through a season of life where you have to lead. At the same time, we're all followers. You might be a follower at work, you're a follow, follower at home or with your friends or here at church. Understanding what fear does is critical to your role as a leader and as a follower. When the challenges are exaggerated and reality is distorted, it's going to make you a poor leader and a poor follower. You know why? Because now you're reacting and evaluating and making decisions in response to something that doesn't really exist. You see that in the story? The land devours its inhabitants, everybody's of great height. This is not reality. Now, maybe you've been in a situation at work or you've been in a situation with your family or your social circles where you've had to engage in a tough conversation. What happens 
when fear is your default posture leading up to the conversation. When you're afraid, when you've got adrenaline is pumping and you're afraid of what's going to happen leading up to the conversation, how does the conversation go in your head when the default position of your heart is fear? How does that conversation go? There's war. It's World War III in there, right? When you're afraid of how this thing's going to go, you start playing out all sorts of scenarios, and it's doomsday scenarios, every one of them. Why? Because that's what fear does. It exaggerates the challenges, and it distorts your picture of reality. That's the first effect. The second effect is that it produces irrational responses, which makes sense. Sometimes you might hear someone say, fear is irrational. I don't know that fear itself is irrational. People are afraid of their homes burning down. That's happened before. To fear it, I don't think is irrational. It's happened before. There's a precedent for it. But fear does produce irrational responses to what you fear. Chapter 14, then all the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation, now here it is, watch this. The whole congregation said to them, would that we had died in the land of Egypt. Really? That's better? Or that we had died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into the land to fall by the sword? Our wives and little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back? Fear distorts our ability to see reality clearly. It causes us to exaggerate the negative, which leads next to addressing this distorted view of reality with a solution that is irrational. Would that we had died in Egypt or that we had died in this wilderness? Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? Now, this, this plan of action triggered by fear is nonsense. Remember what their experience was like in Egypt? That's what they're proposing. Do you remember what it was like? As a side note, Notice, too, how fear of the future can cause us to sugarcoat the past. (laughs) You see that? Fear of the future can cause us to sugarcoat the past. And do you see how a call to go back to the good old days may actually be a sign of fear? Maybe this is why the writer of Ecclesiastes says it's not wise to ask the question, why were the old days better than these? Israel's fear of the future causes them to sugarcoat their past. Remember what life was like for them in Egypt? Exodus 2, during those many days the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant. This happens again and again. He used the word oppression to describe their experience in Egypt. And what they're proposing is that they go back to that. Yeah, that makes sense. You see how fear snowballs and eventually produces absurd responses. One of the clearest examples of this, I think, in modern day life is in the arena of politics. And it happens on both sides of the political aisle. When fear grips a segment of one political party in response to what the other is doing, it generates sometimes some pretty extreme ideas that if emotion 
and fear were checked at the door, the ideas could be looked at as quite absurd. This is what fear does. It causes us to exaggerate the challenges. It distorts our view of reality, which leads, secondly, to irrational responses. Third effect, it instigates mutiny. And they said to one another, let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before all the assembly of the congregation of the people of Israel. Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, who were among those who had spied out the land, tore their clothes. And they said to the congregation of the people of Israel, the land which we passed through to spy it out is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land that flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord and do not fear the people of the land, for they are bred for us. Their protection is removed from them. And the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. You know, I'd listen to that speech. Here's a leader, right, trying to rally the troops, trying to get them to say, this, is, this can be done. We can do this. God, the Lord has given it to us. He gets done with this really compelling speech. I'm, I'm there. I'm saying, yes, let's go. But look at how they respond. Then all the congregation said to stone them. You have this passionate plea. And the text says that in response to this passionate plea by a leader within their ranks, they said, let's kill him. Now notice that Israel's fear has given way to rage. They want to pick up stones and throw them at their heads and kill them. Keep in mind, before there was rage, there was fear. Fear and anger are siblings. In human experience, where there's anger, there certainly is or used to be fear. Now, in daily life, we may not attempt to murder someone in our anger, but our fear, which graduates to anger, can often cause us to mutiny. Just like Israel, they'll say, we'll say, let's go find another leader. Let's go find another leader who can take us back to where we were. We can do that. We can look for another leader. Or people you're leading, they may just leave you. They may just go someplace else. Or they may try to rally the troops to oust you. The snowballing effect of fear continues. Fourth effect of fear, it's a statement about God. Here's the thing with fear. It's ultimately about God. God interprets your fear as a statement about him. Chapter 14, verse 11, And the Lord said to Moses, How long will this people despise me? And how long will they not believe in me? In spite of all the signs that I have done among them. God interprets your fear as a statement about him. You can say it's the situation. You can say it's the circumstances. You can say it's the environment. You can come up with all sorts of ways to try to rationalize it, to justify it, but God's not going to let us do that. God interprets our fear as a statement of contempt against him. If one of you were to come up to me afterwards, after the service, and hand me a check, and that check represents your hard-earned money, a gracious gift, and I say to you, no, uh, this check's no good. It's going to bounce. And I take that check in hand and I rip it up in front of you. What would you think? You'd think, how can you show contempt for a gift? That's hard-earned money. What do you mean it's going to bounce? 
that check is good. I haven't bounced a check since college. God has been promising to bring them into a prosperous land, and Israel just ripped up the check. Fear makes a statement of contempt about God. Do you see why this story is a treatise on the destructive nature of fear? Fear exaggerates the challenges. It prevents us from being able to see clearly what's in front of us. It distorts reality. In response to this distorted picture of reality, it causes us to sugarcoat our past and produce irrational responses to it. Fear instigates mutiny. It prompts abandonment. And fear is a statement of contempt against God. It's no wonder why, by the way, the most frequent command in all the Bible is do not fear. Second, how fear flourishes. So you have these 12 leaders who were sent out to scout out the land. Ten of them succumbed to fear. Two did not. Why? All 12 have experienced identical things. While they were in Egypt, they witnessed God's deliverance. They've all seen the same stuff. They've all heard the same stuff. Why are their responses different? Why are Joshua and Caleb in such a different place than the other 10? Well, the answer is pretty simple. They know, remember, and trust what God said about their mission. Exodus 3, then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. And I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey. God said and promised to bring them into a land flowing with milk and honey. Joshua and Caleb know what he said. They remember what he said. And they trusted what he said. See, fear flourishes with ignorance, forgetfulness, and distrust. Just a few years later, God comes to Joshua, who is now leading the people of Israel. Moses is dead. Joshua is his successor. God comes to Joshua, and here's what God says to him. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so you may be careful to do all according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened, and do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Notice in this passage, within the same train of thought, God connects the command to be strong and courageous with meditating on the scriptures. Here in Joshua 1, God is commanding the opposite of what took place in Numbers 13 and 14. And the command to be strong and courageous does not stand alone as if it's produced by some rugged determination. There's a connection between strength and courage and meditating on God's word. So here's the takeaway for us. If you do not have a robust, disciplined, consistent, deep, thoughtful, devotional life. You are making yourself vulnerable to fear. 
Overcoming fear is not a matter of New Year's resolutions or willpower. Fear flourishes in the vacuum of an anemic devotional life. So what is it about a robust, disciplined, consistent, deep, thoughtful, devotional life that expels fear? What is it about that? I think this kind of devotional life possesses a reorienting power. The 10 scouts who succumbed to fear were doing what? They were comparing themselves to the giants in the land. Joshua and Caleb were comparing the giants in the land to God. Do you see in this story how the 10 who succumbed to fear were self-concentrating? They were preoccupied with comparing themselves to the task in front of them. Where is God in that picture? He's missing. Listen, fear is functional atheism. God is missing in the 10 scouts picture of what's in front of them and what's to happen. Meanwhile, Joshua and Caleb are leaving themselves completely out of the picture. Instead of comparing themselves to the giants in the land, comparing themselves to the mission in front of them, they're comparing the mission in front of them to God, the task in front of them to God. They are God concentrating. That's what led them to say, let's go get it. As a church, we need to etch this story in our hearts. Over the next couple of months, you're going to hear about some dreams we have for our church, the next chapters in the life of Alliance Bible Church. And it's going to require a conscientious rejection of fear and a willingness to embrace courage not through rugged self-determination, but by refusing to compare ourselves with the giants. Instead of comparing the giants in front of us to us, we're going to compare the giants in front of us to our immeasurable God. Eighty years ago, as Notre Dame was preparing to play the USC Trojans in college football, Fighting Irish coach Newt Rockney was aware that his opponent had a far better team. Uh, so here's what Newt did. He devised a plan to intimidate the opposing players. Rockney scoured the city of South Bend, Indiana, the location of Notre Dame University, and Rockney handpicked 100 of the largest men he could find each at least six foot five, 300 pounds. He put those men in fighting Irish uniforms and at game time marched them onto the field ahead of the real team. Obviously, this is before the days of limited rosters and eligibility restrictions. As USC watched those giants line up on the sidelines, they forgot about their talent. They forgot about their undefeated record. And they mentally began preparing themselves for a beating. Though none of the specially recruited men played during the game, their presence on the sidelines was enough to knock USC's concentration off balance. Newt Rockney's trick worked. 
he had intimidated the Trojan players into giving up even before the game started. That's how fear flourishes. When all our concentration is spent comparing ourselves to the giants, comparing ourselves to the challenges. Joshua and Caleb resisted that. They didn't do that. They looked at the mission in front of them, the giants in front of them, the hurdles in front of them, the mission in front of them, and they compared all that to God. And then they said, let's go get it. Third, fear's kryptonite. The 10 scouts who succumbed to fear and brought back a bad report and stirred up the people to mutiny died on the spot at Kadesh Barnea. God struck them dead. The rest of the people, the adult generation of Israel, died without entering the promised land. God made sure of that. What's so remarkable about this story is that it is fear that prevented them from experiencing God's best. God had something in store for them so much better than their minds had conceived. But their fear caused them to miss out. Fear leads to destruction, not flourishing. Fear leads to punishment, not blessing. Fear causes us to miss out. So what is its kryptonite? You remember the story in Matthew 14? Jesus has gone up the mountain to pray. The disciples have taken to the sea to set sail for the next town. It's dark. It's nighttime. Storm starts tossing the boat about. And Jesus comes walking on the water to them. At first, they think it's a ghost. Then the ever audacious and impulsive Peter pipes up and he says, Jesus, if it's you, command me to come out to you. And and Peter gets out of the boat. He begins to walk on water right out to Jesus. Then the text says this, but when Peter saw the wind, he was afraid. He began to sink. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and rescued him and said to him, you of little faith, why did you doubt? You look at this story in the context of Numbers 13 and 14 and say, well, fierce kryptonite must be not allowing ourselves to become preoccupied with the giants rather than Jesus. Fierce kryptonite must be not getting too preoccupied with the waves rather than Jesus. Not getting too wrapped up in the challenges rather than the God who dwarfs any challenge in front of you. Sure, that's true. Looking to Jesus rather than the waves is certainly a good thing to do. But in a way, that's debilitating. Because it puts 100% of the onus on you to be the kryptonite. What I want you to see as fierce kryptonite is Jesus' extended hand to a sinking Peter. Because here's reality. This side of heaven, you're going to struggle with fear. 
You can determine each year to stare Jesus in the face of daunting waves, but you're not going to do that perfectly. Yes, having a robust, deep, thoughtful, devotional life through which you recall the promises of God helps you expel fear, but you're never going to do it perfectly. This side of heaven, you are going to succumb to fear. What I want you to see is the kind of Jesus Jesus must be for him to extend his hand to us when fear begins to sink us. What kind of Jesus is that? He does not stand on top of the water with arms folded, barking at us like a drill sergeant to get our eyes off the water and onto him. No. Even when the waves overwhelm us, even when fear cascades over the embattlements of our faith, Jesus extends his saving hand to us. That's fear's kryptonite. Even when fear is great, Jesus' grace for you, his love for you, his care for you is greater. He doesn't wag his finger at you. He extends his saving hand to you. That's the kind of Jesus we follow, love, and sing to. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that you are greater than the waves. You are bigger than the giants. You are more powerful than the challenges. Use this text to warn us of the destructive nature of fear. Fear prevents us from experiencing your best for us. So help us, I pray, to develop an aversion to fear so that we can walk in faith. Jesus, I pray that we would discipline our bodies to crave a deep, robust, and thoughtful devotional life. And Jesus, I pray that the byproduct of that wouldn't be purely information, but courage and strength. Jesus, may we never forget that as we succumb to fear weekly, even daily, you stand over us with hand extended to save and rescue. Remind us, Jesus, of your love and grace. Remind us of the kind of Jesus you really are because we praise you for that. In your name.